is we ran into Imond at uh, the CLA conference. Um, and so we got to meet some of our friends in real life there and understand that you actually stole a book from them. I was gifted a book. Why did they gift you a book? They didn't give me anything. I was really nice and kind and sunshine. You're right, I was, I was a complete asshole. You can't prove it. Welcome to The Docket, episode 81. My name is Michael Spratt. Hi, I'm Emily Tamman. Hey, Emily Tamman, how are you? I am wonderful. How are you, Michael Spratt? I'm good, I'm good. We're just coming off a little uh, documentary video shoot in our house. I know, how about that? We are going to be uh, very minorly featured in a documentary about my mother. Wait, God, no, it's not about us. Yes, it's it not is about not us. about us. We have not done enough, no. No, no, no not at all. But uh, this is a project in relation to the work my mom's been doing at the UN uh, on the Global Compact for Migration. And there's a crew that's been following her around to a lot of her work. And I guess they wanted a little of the personal side. So they came to meet us. Yep. And we played some board games and did see some two shots where, you know, be us as a family in the background doing something as they narrate something about your mom. Very contrived. Yes. Um, nice. Yeah, but it's been, uh, it's been good here. First snowfall. Yeah, there's a ton of snow on the ground here, as I think there are in a lot of places in the country, uh, which is, you know, it's okay because it was bloody freezing cold before it snowed. So at least now it's snowy. Yep, something to do, and I got to take Friday off work because it was snowing and I wasn't going to drive to Brockville on summer tires. Well, the procrastinators that are the Tamman Sprats were a little behind the eight ball in getting the winter tires going, so I think we have an appointment two weeks from now. <laughs> so, who could have known that winter would come so soon? I mean, November. last time this year there was no snow. So I think we should have been able to rely on that in perpetuity. I think so. Climate change or otherwise. Um, what else has been going on? You got a medal. I did get a medal. You were a medal was conferred upon you. Yeah, so the Senate uh, conferred upon me the uh, Senate's 150th anniversary medal for um, a bunch of the work that I've done, testifying at committee and helping draft legislation, and maybe even writing a speech or two for senators on the side. On the side of your desk, it was really nice. It was a really I thought it was such an interesting ceremony because it's just all different kinds of people that are being recognized artists activists academics um like just any kind of person that's contributed to their community or to the country in just so many different ways so it's kind of neat to see you among such a diverse group of uh recipients yeah that was it was really fun it was really nice um have we done a podcast since the election since the municipal elections i don't even know I can't even remember. <laughs> Sorry, friends. Um, but if this is a repeat, too bad, because um, Sean Menard is still our city councillor. <laughs> he will be. He's our councillor-elect. Uh, yeah, no, it was quite the campaign. A lot of drama. And I know. I think you we'll worked be... hard on that campaign. I did, as did a lot of different people. Uh, and it was a squeaker, but it was a really, really exciting, energizing campaign to be a part of. And it was that much more satisfying to actually win on election day. Yeah, now you know what it feels like to be on a winning campaign. Right, right, I know. So, um, 
Yeah, but there was all kinds of drama, some of which we're going to talk about on the podcast today. Yeah, um, there's, I think, three things that we can maybe uh, talk about. This is a middle-of-the-day recording on a Saturday afternoon, so I'm sure we're going to get interrupted by crying children at some point. There will be some uh, argument that we have to mediate, but, um, you know, strike uh, podcast while the iron's hot, as the saying goes. (laughs) Yes, Uh, so we're going to talk about three different things, but before we do that, is there anything that you'd like to say? I would. I would indeed. This episode is brought to you by Iman Publishing's Criminal Law Series. This series offers practical and procedural guidance for both defense and crown counsel, anchored by the expertise of general editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Vincenzo. I did not get to meet you after your panel at the CLA conference, Rondinelli. I know, I was really hoping that Mike could get a selfie or something with Justice Rondinelli and maybe apologize to him in person for butchering his name on many occasions on this podcast. But you're there, you're there now. You're all I in. Got You've it. got it. I You've got nailed it. it. I think if I met him in person, I would hesitate and probably yeah. say the wrong thing. He'd be like, nice to meet you, Vicenzo. Justice <laughs> um, Yes, we went to the CLA conference. I did a, a panel on... Ooh, fireplace. I did a panel on um, uh, marijuana and the new legislation that has sort of legalized marijuana. And um, you were my plus one. I came as a plus one. I did not participate in the conference. But on the Friday night, I did have the good fortune to moderate a discussion with David Rudolph from The Staircase with uh, students at the University of Toronto and Osgoode Hall Law Schools. Um, it was a it was a really, really nice event. It was for students who have volunteered for the Innocence Project or Pro Bono Students Canada. And David was incredibly gracious with his time. We had a really great discussion, not only about the staircase and specific questions that the students had in relation to that, but also more broadly about the justice system, the role of defense counsel, and, uh, you know, kind of the nexus between right-wing populism and attacks on the courts, the judiciary, and what that means and what it means for lawyers. So it was really, I think, the impression that I got from the students I got to chat with afterwards was that they really enjoyed it, and I certainly really enjoyed it a lot, too. Yeah, and Rudolph gave um, uh, the lunchtime lecture at the CLA conference to all the criminal lawyers, so it was fun hearing from him. And we met a a lot of Docket fans, so hello everyone that we met at the CLA conference. Yeah, and everyone that I met at the David Rudolph event. (laughs) And we also found out that judges from all levels of court in Ontario listen to the podcast. So, hello, judges. Hello, you know your honors. You hello, your honors. Yours honor. Uh, yes, I know. It's almost a little bit intimidating, but we're just going to pretend that it's not the case and carry on as we always have. So, before we jump in, there's one more announcement that I have. It's a biggie. It's a huge. I think. You're going to have to learn some stuff. I am. So, I set up a docket Discord channel. Discord is a thing. You don't know what that is, do It is you? some kind of a thing that allows people to communicate with one another about a sh- area of shared interest. That's basically what it is. <laughs> You're it's welcome. It's sort of like a chat room. Um, and so it's like a, what do they call that? MS chat or whatever back in the day? MS chat. It's like an IRC ch- chat channel. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So it's sort of like that. There's a link in the show notes. Click on the link. You just have to set up a username and you can join a whole bunch of other Docket listeners in our own sort of private chat channel where you can ask us questions. You can let us know, um, you know, ideas for show topics. And hopefully soon you can maybe join us to listen live to these recordings um, and actually chat with us while we're recording a podcast. Sounds super cool. Whatever it is. We're going to try it. Emily's going to be there. It's going to be freaking fantastic. It's going to be super duper on fleek. 
<laughs> You're so hip with the youth. I'm lingo. really hip with the time. So yeah, check it out. Should be good. All right, now let's get back to stuff we do know about. So, first topic, you sued the mayor and you won. Well, that is a generous interpretation of the outcome, but yes, I, along with two other um, activists in Ottawa, uh, in collaboration with uh, Paul Champ, who's just an incredible um, social justice um, human rights lawyer here in Ottawa. Uh, we brought a constitutional challenge uh, where we were seeking a declaration from the Superior Court that it breaches our uh, right to freedom of expression when the mayor blocks us on Twitter. And I know we've talked about this a bit in the past, but I mean, let's rewind. Um, Jim Watson, the mayor of Ottawa, um, was just elected for his third Third non-consecutive term. Um, he is sort of a uh, prolific, 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 prolific um, social media user. He's got you know a hundred thousand followers, and he tweets all the time about you know city matters and his schedule and things like that. And he also tends to maybe have a bit of a thin skin on Twitter and takes disagreement or people questioning uh, what he tweets as you know a personal attack. And he's actually blocked a lot of people or had blocked a lot of people in the city for asking, you know, very simple questions or, you know, pushing back against, you know, narratives that may not necessarily be 100% correct. And so this started because he finally blocked you. He did. I mean, we've had our disagreements in the past for sure on Twitter. Uh, Jim Watson, in addition to being known for blocking people very freely on Twitter, is also known for taking a really sharp tone with people. And one of the things that I find um, ironic, if not hypocritical, about um, Jim Watson's claim that he doesn't have to put up with, you know, certain type of conduct on Twitter is that he himself has a tendency to be quite discourteous with people and to impugn people's motives or turn kind of legitimate questions into personal attacks. Uh, but in any event, you know, in the middle of an election campaign, the dynamic is a little bit different. And my sense is that he was even freer with the block button than he has been in the past. And uh, following an exchange that involved uh, our local MPP, Joel Harden, the candidate that I was supporting for City Council, Sean Menard, and myself, uh, where which sort of culminated in me um, telling the mayor that uh, a lot of the people in our ward are looking to elect a councillor who would explicitly push back against the mayor's right-wing agenda, as I characterized it. You've gone too far, <laughs> good madam. What a troll. So, yeah, so I got blocked. And, um, and I mean, to be clear, you, unlike my Twitter feed, you don't swear, you're very professional, you're pretty balanced, you know, your hot takes are actually very well thought out. And, I mean, you've never... The, the worst thing you've ever done to Jim Watson is suggest that he has a right-wing agenda. Like, right. there was nothing there was nothing trolly. And um, actually looking back at your tweets, like, you tweet at him maybe, like, twice a month. So it's not like a campaign of harassment or anything. No, at all. And, and I think what really bothered me, you know, so we, we went to the media as we launched our, our lawsuit and the response from the mayor's office really irked me or from the mayor himself, because he was sort of using these straw man arguments or conflating exchanges that he and I had had on Twitter in the past or the other two, Dylan Penner and James Hutt, 
with, you know, really trolly harassment. And so he was saying things like, I don't have to put up with, uh, you know, repeated harassing comments that impugn my personal integrity from anonymous accounts with, you know, no photo. And like, here I am, I have my name for my handle, I have my photo. And I, I just, I have never impugned the mayor's integrity. I have challenged him forcefully on policy. And, and in this particular case, in the middle of a campaign, I was trying to draw attention to my personal view of the mayor's record, which I find to be incredibly conservative, despite the fact that he's attached to the Liberal Party. And as I had hoped, a kind of discussion ensued. Um, he wasn't a part of it because he had blocked me. And so, which is fine. I mean, he doesn't have to engage with me. He doesn't have to respond. The kind of essence of our lawsuit was that when elected officials, in particular, um, you know, members of the government, or in this case, the mayor, uh, block constituents, you know, I didn't fully appreciate that when you're blocked on Twitter, you also can't see anymore what the person tweets. And so um, you're really prevented from participating in the you know, political debates of the day. So this is about political expression in particular, which is, um, you know, occupies a particularly important space in the freedom of expression uh, jurisprudence. And uh, so anyway, so yeah, so we were all ready to go to court on this. And then a little turn of events changed things for us. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's easy to sort of characterize blocking someone as, you know, a pretty narrow action that doesn't impact them very much. And, you know, a lot of people will say, well, like, you don't have any right to have the mayor answer you or to, um, you know, have him see what you what you say. But really, I think it is a bit broader than that, the implications of blocking someone, because, yes, you can't communicate your views to that person, but you also can't see what they tweet out, which can be very important. It can be policy announcements or positions um, or engagements with other constituents. And if you're blocked, then you can't really see the full context of that engagement with other constituents. So you're actually removed from the conversation altogether. And then one step beyond that, if you have a politician who just blocks everyone who disagrees with them, their Twitter feed, when they tweet something, is only positive responses after that. And so it can give a very misleading uh, feeling to sort of what public sentiment is. And, you know, it really prevents you from, you know, attending the town square to hear what other people say. And then it really prevents you from talking to others about, you know, the fallout from, from any of those announcements. And so I think it goes beyond just you don't have the right to yell at a politician. Um, although I think you do have that right in some circumstances. But by blocking uh, people from Twitter, I think it really cuts them out from an important way to not only express themselves, but be informed about what's happening politically. Yeah, and I think the point that you just made is really important. Like Twitter already has a tendency to be a bit of an echo chamber. But if you're, as an elected official, allowed to essentially manipulate the space in such a way that only people that agree with you um, can be shown to be engaging with what you say, Um, And at a time when we're supposedly preoccupied with the proliferation of fake news and other things, I mean, I think this is an example of where um, I'm glad that we were able to start a conversation about this. It was sort of started, um, I think, in the U.S. with a similar lawsuit against Donald Trump, who was, uh, you know, essentially doing the same kind of thing. Um, And I'm not even sure that this issue was quite ripe to be adjudicated in terms of just the amount of thinking that people have done about it. People, when politicians engage on Twitter, Twitter, 
they sometimes do it both in their personal capacity and in their professional capacity. So cabinet ministers, for example, will often have like a departmental um, or you know office Twitter handle and also their personal. Um, and so this kind of line of like, where does it cross over between just a private citizen who happens to be elected engaging on Twitter? And what was interesting about our case, you know, when you when you bring a test case, ideally you don't want too much noise, right? You don't want um, distractions in terms of the facts. And this was a perfect case, I think, in two ways. Number one, because Jim Watson never tweets anything personal. So even though his initial defense was that it's my personal Twitter account and I can block who I want, it's not it wasn't much of a gray area where for some politicians it might be who you know tweet pictures of their family going apple picking half the time and half the time tweet about their um you know what's going on politically in their offices like if you just look at 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 watson's twitter account he doesn't have a family he doesn't have a life he's only a mayor which i think is probably actually true um but there aren't like cat pictures or family pictures or you know what he's watching on Netflix. Pop culture references. It's his schedule. It's his policy announcements. It's city announcements. It's positions on city projects. It's only stuff that is generated from him being the mayor. Yeah, and until recently, in fact, his mayoral profile on the City of Ottawa website directed you to his Twitter account. And it's the only one, too. It's not, again, a case where he had, you know, a mayor's office Twitter and the Jim Watson Ottawa Twitter. There was just, it was the only one. So in that regard, I think it was, um, he was a good candidate for a test case like this. And you were uh, a good litigant as well, because, I mean, he blocked me as well. And, like, I've never, like, you know, been thrown ad hominems or anything at the mayor. Well, I might have, but yeah. I, like, you have a sharper style on Twitter, but, and that's fine too. Like, I don't think you. But should I've be never blocked. been abusive or anything like that. But I mean, like, if I was a litigant, you could look back in my history and be like, "Hey, but you did sort of attack this person, or you did get into a debate here, or you did cross the line here. You never have even put your toe close to the line, so you were a very good litigant yeah, as well." You don't want to muddy the waters with any kind of ambiguity as to like where exactly the line that you know is crossed into harassment is right, and like. Like I said, I don't think that just because you occasionally use a profanity on Twitter or because you are a little sharper in your tone, I still don't think people should be blocked in those circumstances, but you don't want the court to be distracted by, well, this was kind of unkind, you know? So we were very careful to kind of approach um, people who really could not be said to have um, even come anywhere close to the line if there even is one, and I'm not even convinced that there necessarily is one. Uh, and yeah, so we um, rolled that out. We got a very, very positive response in the media. I think in part because if there's one sector that kind of understands what Twitter is as a medium, if there's a, a sector that cares about freedom of expression, uh, it is the media. And so, you know, we were featured on The National, on As It Happens, on Global, CTV. Like, we, we like had... The Globe a, and Freaking Mail had a really positive editorial... An editorial in The Globe. ...about about your case. And I mean, like, you can't get more sort of, like, conservative or Jim Watson-esque than, you know, than The Globe and Mail. Sort of this, like, right-wing, liberal, but, like, centrist, like... Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but you got uh, you got very good reception there. Yeah, we did. And, and, and really, I mean, that's what... I, speaking for myself anyway, really more than anything hope to accomplish with this was 
sort of turn people's minds to this issue and really start a public debate about, um, you know, what are the limits of freedom of expression when it comes to a medium like Twitter, which is, you know, it's not publicly operated, it's a private entity, um, and it does have its own rules of conduct, none of which you know, were breached either by me or by Jim Watson and blocking me, right? So um, just to kind of turn people's minds to that, which we did. And, um, and then, to, you know, in a, in a positive but kind of deflating um, development, we did settle the lawsuit uh, without proceeding to court. Um, the settlement was interesting, though, because initially the mayor had said, this is my personal account, it's not a public account. Um, I can block whoever I want. And in the settlement, the mayor did something that he never does and admitted that he was wrong. He said that on further reflection, um, uh, looking back on this, it is a public account. It is his mayor's account. Uh, it is not right to block people who, you know, haven't engaged in, in harassing conduct. And um, he unblocked everyone in the city of Ottawa. He unblocked everyone that he's ever blocked on Twitter. Yeah. So I think, I don't know if he wasn't previously aware of the mute function, uh, and I don't know if he has muted me or others, I have no idea, and I, I really, it's not my concern. Um, but I think it was, it was, first of all, a pretty big deal for Jim Watson to admit that he was wrong, um, which is not something never he's really happens. prone to do. He's wrong a lot, he just never admits it. That's right. and. Um, and I think, you know, like I said, we can all kind of sit on this for a little bit and then we'll see what happens and we'll see, you know, how other uh, government officials and elected officials decide to conduct themselves on Twitter and see whether, you know, maybe someone else will pursue this at some point in the future with kind of people's minds already been open uh, a little bit to the issue. I should also say, you know, there were those who, you know, are experts in freedom of expression who very much agreed with us. There were others who didn't. Like, I mean, it's not to say that they the, were wrong. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Emmett McFarland. <laughs> no, but wrong in the sense that, you know, I think I think it was wrong what Jim Watson did. Whether it violated the charter, I think we had a very compelling argument that it does. But that's the thing with test cases is like we're asking for the you know the the doctrine to be applied in a new context and and you know where that would have ended up I don't know but you know I would invite people to check out the Stereo Decisis podcast where they had Emmett McFarlane on they had a discussion kind of of both sides and I think they had a subsequent follow up episode as well that kind of got more into the nitty gritty of the law part of it which is not really either one of our areas of expertise which is why I was grateful to have the assistance of Paul Champ. I think if you do want one thing, it's you want a 70-year-old judge uh, who has just discovered what email is and what <laughs> fax machines are to uh, deliver a decision about you know modern technology and Twitter. Well, it's actually funny because I know I've said this before on the podcast, and if anyone who's been my student in the past is listening, I've definitely said this to my students, but one of my very, very, very favorite things in judicial decisions is when judges take kind of relatively known at least to us concepts and tries to explain them in a very kind of detached objective way so you know where you'll have a judge say you know a joint is a marijuana cigarette that is rolled in a thin parchment you know that kind of thing and as part of our um, application to the court we did have a very lengthy affidavit that set out to explain you know what twitter is how it works what blocking is what muting is what followers are like so and it just it just made me laugh because it was exactly, I was just envisioning the decision that would be setting out to explain Twitter in a way that uh, 
would be understandable to like an alien, right? And I mean, don't get me wrong. Some judges are like hip on the technology and stuff like that. And, and more and more I'm submitting factums and materials in electronic form on searchable PDFs and things like that. But I remember I suggested it a little while ago like to the trial creator. I was like, should I submit to the judge like a copy of this on a thumb drive for him? And she was like, oh, no, no, no. please print it out. That's all he can do. Well, and there, there's that side of, you know, just the fact that um, many judges, you know, well, they've all been lawyers. They've often had a lot of administrative support, so aren't always, you know, and there's a huge spectrum, but like aren't always as savvy with technology. But in particular, Twitter is not exactly a very um, inviting space for judges to participate because no. judges don't participate in public debates for very good reason. And so I I know for a fact that there are some that are there lurking in the shadows just reading, which is, you know, Twitter is a, a place that you can kind of see what people are talking about and how they're talking about. It's a place where journalists. my judicial applications go to die. Yeah, exactly. But it's certainly not a place that you would expect to see a lot of judges actually you know, present as active participants, which means, you know, it will be a platform that just by virtue of their, you know, work requirements that they're not, you know, very experienced with. Speaking of judges and technology um, and looking at word processing and the cut and paste function, um, I really think that you should tell everyone about Justice Binney, who you (laughs) clerked for, and how he uses the cut and paste function. It almost feels that it would be indiscreet, but let's just try to envision in your mind a very literal application of the phrase cut and paste. <laughs> and I'll just leave it at that. So moving on to the second topic, um, Emily, do you want to grab some low-hanging fruit? Oh God, are we going to talk about Andrew Shear now? Sheer lunacy. Let's sheer, do it. sheer madness so andrew Shear had uh, a tweet out uh, on saturday that i felt complied uh, complied compelled to respond to um he has a, a well thought out justice policy um sorry, sorry. i think you misspoke <laughs> he has a justice policy uh, I don't even know if I think it would be fair to use the word justice or, frankly, okay. policy. So on Saturday, Andrew Scheer released a misleading infographic full of lies and half-truths on criminal justice. And what Justin Trudeau does, who you may know I don't have very much love for when it comes to justice policy, mm-hmm. comparing it to what Andrew Scheer will do. And I thought we could maybe just run down the different situations. There's six different situations. Uh, what's happening under Justin Trudeau and what would happen under Andrew Scheer. Yeah, so this is essentially Andrew Scheer proposing how he's going to tackle guns and gangs. Like it's specific to, you know, his strategy for gangs. So let's go through them sort of quick. Yeah, Um, The first situation, a known gang member is arrested under Justin Trudeau, automatically eligible for bail. Under Andrew Scheer, automatically detained. Now, let's just take a step back. So the proposition here is that when a known gang... What's the, what is the context again? A known gang member. A known gang member. And his assertion is that that person will automatically be granted bail. Automatically eligible for bail. Well, yes. Which is true in some cases. If you are a known gang member, and we should pause here to note that in the criminal code, uh, there is no definition for a gang member. There's a definition for a criminal organization. 
And uh, gangs are a form. Gangs of- can be a form of criminal organizations. Uh, the police do have a definition for what they consider gang members to be. It's a very broad definition that you know basically captures everyone who's not white who may have ever <laughs> talked to another non-white person who committed a crime. Like it's an incredibly broad definition where you have to meet like two out of six criteria or something. I suspect the words non-white are not in fact written down in the policy, but that would certainly be uh, your interpretation of how it's applied and, it and would probably be a fair one yeah um so gang member known gang member all of this is murky undefined let's just pretend that we know what those are currently if a known gang member steals a chocolate bar um or gets in a drunk driving accident or um misreports his income mm-hmm. and commits fraud um they would automatically be eligible for bail well, I kind of take issue with the word automatically. What he means is presumptively. Yeah, would, that that, it, it, that the onus would be on the state to justify. show why they should be detained. Currently, if a known gang member is arrested for a lot of serious offenses, a lot of drug offenses, a lot of gun offenses, or arrested while they're on bail or on probation, they can find themselves already in a reverse onus provision where they're the ones who have to demonstrate that that it is appropriate to release them on bail. Yeah, and basically this is all the result of constitutional law. So, you know, under our charter, the the default is that people should be released from custody when they are still presumed innocent, innocent and prior to their trial. And in most cases, like you said, the onus is on the crown, the state, to justify why, despite that constitutional principle, the person should nonetheless be detained. And in certain contexts, there is a reverse onus um, that has been upheld as constitutional because of the particular context. Like, for example, you commit an offense while you're out on bail, maybe the first time the onus was on the state, but now that you've breached or you're alleged to have breached your bail, the onus will be on you to establish why. So that's it. It's about presumptions and onuses. It's, and it's incredibly misleading to say automatically like that because it, it very strongly implies that regardless of what anyone does, the person's going to be released. Because no matter what crime you commit, no matter what circumstances you commit, no matter what onus or who has the onus, everyone who is alleged to have committed a crime, is presumed innocent, and everyone is automatically eligible for bail. Sometimes they have to show why they should get bail, and sometimes the Crown should show why they should be detained. But everyone's eligible. Yeah, and I mean, I think a further point that you made that is also important to highlight is that not every offense that a, quote, known gang member commits is in any way related to their membership in a gang. So, like, you know, you like you said, you you have a charge for impaired driving that's even unrelated to even if the crown could establish that you were a part of a gang so it's like oh teachers get released automatically but no and gang members get to take so number one part of andrew shearer's justice policy stupid unconstitutional and, and misleading and dumb Situation two, a known full patch biker gang member is arrested and see no we use biker gang here um, compare that to when we use just gang other in other words. gang. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, I think it's, you know, white biker gang versus racialized uh, individuals. And but- to be clear, like, that's why the criminal code prefers the term criminal organization, because it is sufficiently generic to capture many different ways that bad guys choose to, you know, uh, associate with one another. So when a known full patch biker gang member is arrested, currently under Justin Trudeau, prosecutors must prove that the known biker gang is a criminal group. 
under just under Andrew Shear, the known biker gang is going to be considered a criminal group. This is just again dumb. Like I mean, so just for context, under the current regime. Uh, you know, there is a definition of a criminal organization in the criminal code. And if you're charged with an offense, the Crown has to prove both that you that there was an organization and that the accused was a member of that organization, right? And I, what he's getting at here is like, what a waste of resources that you would have to prove that the Hells Angels are a criminal organization. But the reality is it's not very hard to do that in the case of a known criminal organization. Sometimes the Crown needs to prove stuff like, let's get over it. Yeah, that's it, it, we have an entire justice system that and is based is it on the presumption. why is specific to biker gangs? <laughs> I think because those are the ones that have the most notoriety. Like, there's a, a couple of biker gangs, like the Hells Angels, um, the, what is it, the Something Machine. But like, there's like a the couple. The Rock Machine? The, I don't know. Like, I don't even know. But um, that are so notorious that Andrew Shear thinks it's a waste of resources to ask the state to just go through the steps of proving that it's a criminal organization. I don't know why, like, I don't know what, um, what the ambition is here. Like, what's the goal? What's the problem with requiring the Crown to prove that? That, like, the negative consequence associated with that, that he's trying to remedy? Sometimes the Crown needs to prove stuff that seems sort of obvious. Get over it. Yeah. Number, situation number three. A convicted gang member is paroled and then reunites with his former gang. Under Justin Trudeau, nothing happens. False. Under Andrew Scheer, the gang member will go back to prison. So (sighs) here's this one, okay? So when someone's paroled, there are rules of parole. Because the person is still serving their sentence. They're just serving a portion of it in the community as a part of an effort to reintegrate them into the community. And if they break those rules or if they commit a new crime, their parole is revoked and they automatically go back to jail and they can be prosecuted if they commit a new crime. Um, Right now, typical rules are, especially if you're from a known gang, using Shear's language, is not to associate with certain people or not to associate with people that you've committed crimes with in the past or Or, not to to associate with people with criminal records. Um, And to be clear, there's actually some problems with that. But there leaving is, that but aside, that is that's the what it is. status quo under, quote, Justin Trudeau, as it was, by the way, under Stephen Harper as well. So there, and keep in mind the very broad definition that the police have of, of gang membership. So it means that if someone who you've proved is in a gang gets out of jail, is on parole, is complying with all the conditions of the parole, but is hanging around with people in his neighborhood that the police also think is part of the gang... Um, Andrew Shearer would like to automatically have them return to prison. There's a few problems with that. The first is that individual is not committing any crime. They're not violating any rules of their, of their uh, probation. And the Supreme Court has already told us very recently that retroactively limiting parole eligibility is a constitutional problem and, and, is, and violates the charter. Um, I... I'm no expert, but I think retroactively... You kind of are, but... Taking away people's parole um, when they haven't committed a crime or done anything is also going to be found to be a a constitutional violation. Well, so there's two different questions. Number one, if Andrew Scheer were to attempt to change the criminal code in such a way, you know, say tomorrow, um, would it apply to people who are already on parole? That would run into the problem that you're talking about. Uh, But even if it were to be on a going forward basis, i.e., you know, like people that are in the future released on parole, 
would be subject to this. I, I, this is again like a solution in search of a problem. Like the, I think as you set out very clearly, like it's already the case that if you're on parole and you're on a condition, which most people are not to associate with certain kinds of people, your parole gets revoked. So when he says nothing happens, actually like his status quo interpretation is just basically false. No, it's it's misleading. It's, it's and just a to lie. reiterate again, this is not something that Justin Trudeau brought in. This is not like some new policy under Justin Trudeau. This is how it's been for a long time. So, and the last three, I'll sort of lump together, but yeah. I'll read out the last three situations. A gang member tells someone to steal a car on behalf of the gang. A gang member commits an aggravated assault on behalf of the gang. And a gang member tells someone to commit an aggravated assault on behalf of the gang. Under Justin Trudeau, they get a suspended sentence or a fine. Under Andrew Scheer, there's going to be mandatory prison sentences. Now, (sighs) this is a lie um, because I'll tell you this. If a gang member commits an aggravated assault, if anyone commits an aggravated assault, and that is an assault that wounds or maims someone permanently, cutting off a finger, slashing them with a bottle, leaving a giant scar across their face, or otherwise disfiguring them, that person will never get just a suspended sentence or a fine. I very recently represented someone who got in a bar fight and hit someone with a bottle and caused very serious injuries that amounted to aggravated assault. It was a spur-of-the-moment bad decision by this kid, and he had no criminal record. Um, And very positive things to say about him and the circumstances were very mitigating in which it happened and he still went to jail the person who kidnapped um Suter from the Suter case that we mm-hmm. talked we talked about uh, that with peter sankoff and cut off his finger he just received 10 years in jail for that aggravated assault yeah and it wasn't even directed by a gang right so and we already know that that membership in a gang or doing something on behalf of a gang is an aggravating factor under the criminal code so i would challenge andrew Shear or the person who created this infograph for him um find me one case now someone did someone on twitter did find one case where there's a gang member who committed aggravated assault and didn't go to jail someone did and i was just trying to find it right now and i couldn't so sorry i'll try to find it and we can link to it Um, What I think is important to understand is that, like, when the criminal code stipulates a particular range of sentence, like, what what Andrew Scheer is saying is that under Justin Trudeau, the person will get a suspended sentence or a fine. What is, in fact, correct in law is that everyone is eligible, except when there's a mandatory minimum, for a really wide range of sentencing options. That doesn't mean it's ever applied. So just because, you know, a lesser, less intrusive... Um, sentencing option is available doesn't mean that it's ever applied. And just because someone can point to one case one time where it was, and again, we'd have to look at the very particular, and I'm sure there were unique circumstances there, um, it's incredibly misleading to suggest that in those three scenarios, currently under the current government, people are getting suspended sentences and fines because it's not the case. Well, the other situation that Andrew Scheer doesn't address, so I guess he's okay with this, Um there's no mandatory minimum sentence for manslaughter. It's something yeah. that can be punishable by up to life in jail, but there's no minimum sentence for it. So a gang member who commits a manslaughter um, could get a suspended sentence or fine, but it appears that Andrew Shear is okay with that. 
But moving on from sort of the lies in, in his, his picture graph and, and just sort of the misrepresentation of things, it's again such a small-minded solution to think that mandatory minimum sentences actually help or a good thing because we know from all of the evidence and we've said this before that minimum sentences actually don't deter people from committing offenses deterrence is barely a thing and someone who serves a minimum sentence actually is more likely to commit another offense when they get out of jail and it really hampers rehabilitation it also induces guilty pleas from people who are innocent and it can incentivize people who are clearly guilty to go to trial. So it's a, it's a prime cause of court delays. So there's a lot wrong with this Andrew Shear piece. It's and, and, and to be lunacy. clear, mandatory minimums have also frequently been found to be unconstitutional. So a number of his proposals are unconstitutional. And that's, that's not new for this um, federal conservative party. It's not I mean, new for the liberals either, so it, it well, doesn't matter. Well, exactly. And that, this is the other thing is like, you know, when you were tweeting about that and your tweet was getting a lot of traction, all these liberals were like, yeah, Andrew Shear's justice policy is not good. And it was like, look in the mirror, friends. Your justice policy uh, has had a lot of problems and much of it also has serious constitutional issues. Um, and I just it's just really disappointing that we're still in a place where politicians feel like it's politically expedient to manipulate um, the public's you know misunderstanding of how the justice system works um, and actually amplify that in, in cases like this and then propose solutions that are not even that you know to things that aren't even problems and solutions that aren't even good like even if you were prepared to accept even if he was telling the truth about the status quo the solutions that he's proposing are would be ineffective unconstitutional contrary to evidence and just plain a bad idea yeah i'm nodding over here i mean what you should really do andrew is give me a call retain me i will give you a devastating tough on crime policy that will be constitutional that everyone on the left will hate and that, you know, might actually work. Please don't. Don't call him. And don't call do that me. if he calls. Call me. <laughs> Just charge your legal aid rates. <laughs> um, before we move on to talk about our last uh, topic, um, I do want to um, give a shout out to Iman Publishing and their great criminal law series. We ran into Iman at uh, the CLA conference. Um, and so we got to meet some of our friends in real life there and understand that you actually stole a book from them. I was gifted a book. Why did they gift you a book? They didn't give me anything. I was really nice and kind and sunshine. You're right. I was, I was a complete asshole to them. So first of all, nice to meet you, our friends from Iman Publishing, because we had never met in person before. Uh, and I was lucky enough to be gifted a copy of one of the uh, latest titles that was just published in October of 2018, and that is uh, Charter Remedies in Criminal Cases. It's authored by... The Andrew Shear story. <laughs> exactly. It is authored by two gentlemen with the first name Matthew, uh, Matthew Asma and Matthew Gourlay. Please, I look forward to all your tweets and emails about how I butchered I don't, your um, names. I don't think I've ever met Matthew Asma before. Asma. 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 Um, but I do know that Matthew Gurley is one of those people that I hate. Why? Is he really good Because he's like super smart and he's super <laughs> nice and he's really good in court and now he's written a book. Yeah. Good for you, Matthew Gurley. Congratulations. So, um, you know, we've talked before about um, this criminal law series and I think just looking at the description of this book, I see again um, an effort to go, you know, 
take the theory, but then also show how to apply it. So what kind of evidence do you need to call to form the basis of a charter remedy application? You've read this book, right? I've not yet had the opportunity to read it from cover to cover. Huh, if they had given it to me, have you taken the cellophane off of it? I, I don't think that's either here huh. nor is it there. I would have read it if they had gifted it to me. Well, I will be reading it. I'm looking forward to reading it. But um, I think this will be, you know, a must-have for practicing criminal lawyers on all sides. So Iman Publishing's Charter Remedies in Criminal Cases, a Practitioner's Handbook, which is part of the excellent uh, criminal law series, which is uh, edited by General Editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Vincenzo Rondinelli. And for our listeners, Iman's offering 10% off titles in the series. You just have to go to imond.ca slash CLS, which I just put together now, stands for Criminal Law Series. You're smart. And enter code docket 10 at checkout. <laughs> I seriously always wonder. Like CLS. It's very random. Sense, it must be so, one of their internal data abbreviations. All right. Acronyms. So um, this podcast will be coming out late Sunday night. Um, on Monday, I'm going to enrage, I think, a large part of the civil bar uh, with an op-ed on pro bono Ontario. Um, so while you're listening now, before you read uh, the op-ed, um, maybe, Emily, can you outline sort of what's gone down with, uh, mm-hmm. with PBO? So as many people probably are already aware, um, getting access to legal representation can be a challenge for even relatively, you know, modest income earners. So, you know, legal services have become increasingly out of reach. As Justin Trudeau and the Liberals would say, the middle class and those seeking to join those it working hard to join can't it. really afford civil lawyers for family law, employment law, sort of human rights, or things like that. all the different kind of, you know, legal troubles that people can find themselves in, even innocently, right? So um, there are lots of different mechanisms to address this, one of which um, is the Pro Bono uh, Ontario's uh, help centers. Um, So this is a program through which um, practicing lawyers uh, volunteer some of their time to assist people that are in need of legal services who can't otherwise afford to retain a lawyer. Um, I think one of the really, you know, and these are really, really important, good programs. Uh, I think they only fill a teeny, teeny, tiny bit of the need, but that's not to say that it wouldn't be a huge loss to lose them, right? And so these are, um, this is a program that has always been funded by, as I understand it, a number of different grants, including a significant grant from the Law Foundation um, of Ontario, in addition to, you know, various other sources. And it was unfortunately announced, um, I guess, last month or earlier this month that uh, $500,000 worth of grant funding had been lost and that as a consequence, the help center offices, which are co-located in uh, courthouses, two in Toronto and one in Ottawa. And those offices are run out of space that the government has given um, Pro Bono Ontario um, for free of free of rent. That's right. So the government doesn't directly contribute money to the Pro Bono um, Ontario's operations, but it has been providing this space um, in the courthouse, which, you know, is is important for people who live near those courthouses to help them connect with these lawyers. Um, so, you know, I think one of the most important services that they um, that they deliver is connecting litigants in need of pro bono representation with lawyers looking to volunteer their time, um, you know, to do that. So 
that's what they do. They're super, super important. But again, I don't have the data, but they're only, you know, likely serving a very small number of those people who find, you know, legal representation out of reach. Um, criminal law, of course, is dealt with separately under Legal Aid Ontario. Uh, some child protection and limited family and immigration law also, um, you know, has some access to legal aid. But by and large, if you don't fit within that, and even for that, you have to be a very, very, very low income person. Um, if you have if you're being sued, if you have some other kind of civil dispute, um, this is kind of one of your only places to go um, other than some very specialized uh, legal clinics at yeah. some of the universities. So I mean, basically these clinics provide legal advice and limited legal representation for individuals who are having private disputes, someone who has been wrongfully terminated, someone who has a predatory landlord who has, you know, kicked them out, um, you know, someone who has other sort of issues that normally a private civil lawyer would deal with. You're being sued or you need to sue someone. Um, and so, you know, there's going to be a big gap in the access to justice yeah. when, when these clinics are closed. The um, An internal sort of audit that they did shows that they deliver about ten to a tenfold return on an investment. So they save the court system about $6 million a which year. Is, which is huge. It is because sometimes they can cut things off before it gets to court or, you know, help facilitate people. So you have less, you know, uh, rudderless self-directed uh, um, self lit litigants, right? Yeah, and narrow the issues so that, you know, maybe the person initially is, you know, advancing 10 different claims, but only one of them really has any merit. And so. sometimes a couple phone calls can make a matter not proceed to court, can make it go away or, or resolve. So, I mean, like, these are very good services. And I think quite rightly the civil bar has sort of been up in arms about this closure um or pending closure but there's a couple things that sort of rubbed me the wrong way about it um the first was sort of this knee-jerk reaction that doug ford's not giving them funding so um this is all you know the big bad provincial government's fault when in reality, no provincial government has given them funding. This government isn't treating them any differently uh, than anyone else. And the Attorney General has said, you know, we encourage you to go and try to work out some private solutions to these problems. The civil lawyers um, find that not satisfactory and are predicting a massive access to justice problem. They're proposing perhaps every lawyer in Ontario should uh, should pay a tax on their law society fees to keep these clinics open, um, or perhaps there should be government funding. Um, and there's been a lot of sort of happy backslapping about all the good work they do, when in reality only a small number of civil lawyers actually give their times to these clinics, and on average it's about an hour a month. So this isn't a huge investment by these lawyers. And the reason why we have an access to justice problem in the first place is because civil lawyers' fees are crazy, like crazy bananas crazy. The reason why people can't, even people in the middle class, can't access the courts and have a lawyer is because to get into the boardroom of a civil law firm and a Bay Street law firm, you're looking at paying hundreds of dollars an hour, yeah, three or $400 an hour to retain a lawyer. Least. And... Um, you know, the surveys done show that if it's a two-day trial, you're looking at costs over $30,000, costs that have gone up more than 40% on a year-to-year -year basis. 
Now, to be fair, I just want to be really clear. Like, you are talking about a particular segment of the bar. There are, I'm sure, small town lawyers that do civil litigation that aren't charging rates that are nearly as high as that. But even if you think of a more modest rate, like even $100 an hour, like adds up really quick, right? Even if it's not four, five, six dollars $600 an hour. It is, and perhaps what rubs me the wrong way is large firms um, that charge very high rates that do this type of work don't assist these individuals and are asking others to subsidize access to justice so they can continue charging high rates to those who can pay. Yeah. Um, one way to maybe increase access to justice is to have those firms directly do pro bono work to let some of those people into their boardrooms or for those firms, you know, the large Bay Street firms, the firms that charge those very high rates to come together and fund these clinics themselves. I mean, I think most ironically and lacking any self-awareness whatsoever, the Advocate Society, which is made up of largely of sort of these very senior, very high-priced, very good civil lawyers, released a plea um, online, a video saying, we need to keep these centers open. We need to find a source of funding. Like, we need to find some money to keep these places open from their conference at a high-scale resort in Laguna Beach, California. And so there are lots of lawyers who donate their time. There are lots of lawyers, especially young lawyers, who do a lot of, you know, good pro bono or, you know, good access to justice work and charge, you know, you know, modest rates. But some of the lawyers who have been most active on pulling their hair, saying we can't find the money, where will we find the money? They are reluctant to look in their own backyard to think about reducing their rates, to thinking about taking on clients that can pay less, to, to thinking about banding together to fund these clinics themselves. And yeah. that, I think, is a lack of self-awareness. It has driven me a little bit crazy on this issue. Yeah, it's been, it's been a little hard to, you know, and again, there have been some really effective, excellent champions out there for this program, like Aaron Durant and Sean Bodden, who've been really um, taking to Twitter to try to raise awareness. and. I know it's coming from a good place and I think, you know, I think we all agree that these clinics have an important role to play. And they're going to need even if Bay Street opens up their boardrooms to pe- to to people of modest means, there's always going to be individuals who can't afford legal representation. Like, yeah. you know, the immigrant mom who gets um, who gets fired in an unjust manner and has yeah. no recourse and has no money and has no job. I mean, people like that are probably going to need some sort of assistance. Yeah, and you won't find bigger champions for access to justice than the two of us. I mean, we, you know, spend a lot of time worrying about how inaccessible the courts have become to so many people. So we are on the same page in the sense that, you know, we see a need to not only preserve organizations like this, but also to find bigger, you know, more significant, more structural solutions to access to justice. And I think the reality is the government should pitch in some money, the private sector should. And when we talk about the private sector, we're not talking about like, you know, access to justice brought to you by Walmart. We're talking about the very people whose fees have become a barrier to access to justice um, should be a part of the solution and not just by sending tweets of support and asking other people to come up with the money. And frankly, $500,000, that would maintain the status quo. We need much, 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 much more. These these three centers, there are two in Toronto, one in Ottawa. There aren't offices in other smaller jurisdictions. Now, there is a helpline, and maybe one of the solutions is to try to amplify the helpline and 
um, you know, maybe the offices aren't economically feasible and the resources. Or you can get rid of those offices and just have clients directly into your firm. Yeah. Um, Or you can, I mean, what most criminal lawyers do is there are clients who we charge a lot of money if their case is complex and they can afford it. But there's also a lot of clients that we take at legal aid rates and there's so many clients that I just do work for free or do work for like the most marginal amount of money possible. Yeah. Um, and that is something I don't, I don't see that in the civil bar. Yeah. And again, we don't intersect with it that often. So I'm sure there are many good people out there that are doing lots of great work and, and doing their part to kind of deal with this issue. But at the end of the day, like what I, what I hope is that this advocacy will be sustained that even if the $500,000 is found that people won't sort of say like, okay, well, I did what I needed to do. And now we've maintained the status quo because the reality is the status quo doesn't go nearly far enough. And you know, it has been good to see, um, you know, people actively engaging in this issue. Uh, People that have been part of the problem, people that have been part of the solution, you know, like there's, there's all, all sides here. Um, I hope the government is, is listening and seeing that, okay, you know, this is, this is a real problem that maybe we haven't been putting our minds to. I kind of doubt it given the current government in particular. Um, but that I hope this is the beginning and not kind of just the end in that, you know, if the money is found, I, I, whether it is from a law society levy or from Bay street ponying up some cash or from whatever the government, um, you know, I really hope that these people will be more sustained in their advocacy because this problem is not going to go away by maintaining these help centers. Sell off the art on your wall, sell off the bottles of wine from your vintage wine cellar. Stop with these straw men arguments about, oh, we wouldn't be able to, to accommodate these clients or we wouldn't be able to fill, fill their needs because there's high needs or they wouldn't be able to afford us. You can do more to not only keep these centers open, but open up your offices to help you know, people who actually need help but can't afford three or $400 an hour. Agreed. All right, civil lawyers, love you. <laughs> Thanks for all you do. Um, all right, that's it. That's it. Thanks for listening. See ya. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com, or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman, and you can follow me on Twitter at Sprat. Thanks for listening.